all who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to the business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they, could, they found, both good and bad. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. My paternal grandparents carved out a living from the land as farmers in southwest Michigan. Now, early on, we lived about 20 minutes away across the border in Mishawaka, Indiana, a small town next to South Bend. My house is only about two miles from Notre Dame. I love spending some of my summer at the farm, helping my grandpa in the field, and eat my grandma's cooking. She did exciting things in the kitchen, things that we didn't experiment with much back at our house. Like, she put onion soup mix in the hamburger, and then she put the meat between two pieces of wax paper, and, and, and she would stick it in a hamburger press. I mean, seriously, who, who has a hamburger press? And then she'd pull out these perfectly formed hamburger patties that looked like they came out of pages of Southern Living or something. And then she'd take the buns and she would butter them and put a little garlic salt on them. And then she'd put them under the broiler and toast them up real good, throw in some French fries, fried and deep fried in grease that had a little bit of bacon grease in it. And for dessert, she'd go out into the garage and they had a big ch uh, freezer out there, a chest from which she would uh, take this box it was Tupperware um, one of those long thin boxes and uh, in it were all kinds of cookies 
frozen cookies. So she would have these ginger snaps with white icing and raisins on them, snickerdoodles and peanut butter cookies. And she made chocolate chip cookies, which I loved, but my favorite were the, the frozen mint chocolate chip cookies. good. But my poor mom, I mean, how's she supposed to compete with that on the $50 a week grocery allowance my dad generously gave her every week to feed six of us? Not only in the summer, but we spent, we went to my grandparents' house a couple times a month on Sundays and on holidays. And that all changed when we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, in my seventh grade year, because we were in the same state now, but Rather than 20 minutes apart, we were now an hour and 45 minutes apart. And that trip, ah, it just seemed like it took forever. Because we travel south on I-196, sort of hugging the contours of Lake Michigan. And then we would get down to I-94, which is that, that big artery between Detroit and Chicago. It was all pretty uncomplicated until we got off the expressway. At that point, we had to get on a state road that would take us to US Route 31, right? That's the same Highway 31 that comes down from Mackinac Island, through South Bend, through Indianapolis, down through Louisville, all the way down to Spanish Fort, Florida, close to Mobile, Alabama. Now, the trip to my grandparents' house after getting off the expressway was a little over 20 miles on two-lane back, uh, back roads, which had been made even more arduous because we could see that they were in the process of building an extension of Highway 31. And it would eventually go only a mile past my grandparents' house and it would ultimately connect with I-196. It would cut out all that extra nonsense on these two-lane roads, which, you know, I mean, it felt like an obvious thing to me as a kid, just build the road for crying out loud. Now, I've waited and watched as the government would do little work, uh, do a little work here, and then things had stopped for what seemed like forever. You know how that construction goes on roads, right? And then maybe, you know, the Department of Transportation, they get a Christmas bonus or something, and there'd be another flurry of work, and then another drought of inactivity. A little bit would, be, would open up, a little bit more here and there. Now, my grandparents have been gone for years, but I still take US 31 from Louisville to see my family up in Michigan. So for over 40 years now, I followed the progress of this stupid little patch of highway waiting to finally be able to take the shortcut that I've been waiting to take for 40 years. So this summer, when we drove back to Michigan for my high school reunion, I finally, for the very first time, got to take the shortcut straight up from South Bend, right past my grandparents' house, straight on through to I-196. It was glorious. Now, I realize that probably doesn't hold the same emotional impact for you as it does for me. But man, driving that shortcut was awesome. 
I mean, that's a long wait to shave 15 minutes off of a trip, don't you think? But it felt so good. When I got home, and then I tried to reconstruct the way that we used to take before that extension was put in, the long way that we drove when I was a kid, and to my horror, I found that I couldn't do it. I couldn't remember the way we'd gone countless times before because now it was just gone. With the new highway, nothing even looked vaguely familiar. Did that ever happen to you? You get a new uh, route to take, whether you want to or not, and after a short time, the old route starts to fade. New maps help get you where you want to go, but they can add to the confusion of remembering about how things used to look. Right? I mean, no matter how disconcerting it feels to forget something you figured you'd remember for the rest of your life, the truth of the matter is you still have a new map in front of you. And the new map can make the old map fuzzy, even begin to disappear. But it's not that just that maps get updated, is it? I mean, stuff is changing around us all the time. But it's the, the, the way the, the landmarks and milestones that we've used to make sense of the world, they begin to fade from our memories. And before we know it, the world we've been at home at was just a new place. Unfamiliar places require new maps. That doesn't sound very controversial, right? And unfamiliar times require that we tell ourselves new and different stories about the world we live in now. What it all means, how we're supposed to survive, what we need to focus on. And then the stories we use that, that we used to tell, they, they, they don't always fit our situations as things change. Right? Sometimes we need a new story, or at least a different take on an old story. Because as much as we need a new map, a new story, the old one bleeds through, doesn't it? We see hints of it here and there, right out of the corner of our eyes, and we're reminded that the urgency of the new never completely replaces the familiar landmarks, the old stories. They're still there, but we need a new way of incorporating those old landmarks and lost highways into our understanding of the world that we currently inhabit if the new maps are going to connect us to the dreams that we had when we were young, dreams we've had so many of us and held dear for so long. Take this story from our gospel this morning, for example. Matthew has Jesus tell this story a few days after um, or excuse me, before he's crucified. The culmination of three stories that directly attack Jewish leaders in Jerusalem after the cleansing of the temple. Now, the only other gospel that tells a version of this story is Luke, and he includes it very early on in Jesus' ministry. So it seems clear that, that, that Matthew includes this story where it is for his own purposes, and since Matthew writes the gospel somewhere between 80 and 90 CE, he uses a story of the wedding banquet to alert the community he's addressing to something specific to their new situation. But the question is, what is that? What's going on? What's the new situation? What's, what's happening with this congregation that Matthew's writing to? Now, Matthew, whom uh, scholars believe is connected to a, a church or a group of churches, congregations, in Antioch, Syria. 
Matthew applies this parable of Jesus to the situation that his readers are now in, in Antioch, at the end of the first century. And the consensus view of Matthew is that his readers are probably Jewish Christians, which is to say Jews who practice a form of Judaism that recognizes Jesus as God's promised Messiah. This new Jewish Christian sect was an increasingly contentious debate partner with their traditional Jewish cousins. And it all stemmed from Jesus' identity. Is he a Messiah? Is he not? Is he, is he who he said he was? Or is he not? Now, according to conventional wisdom about crucifixion, Jesus was, at best, a humiliated prophet. And at worst, an executed felon, a revolutionary. So in, in Matthew's allegorical telling of this parable, God is the king who invites the children of Israel to receive Jesus as God's son, as the Messiah, right? But who's rebuffed by the local Jewish religious leaders. So the king disinvites the local bigwigs in favor of spurned outsiders, that is to say, Matthew's readers, who have responded positively to the king's invitation. Now, the moral of the story, when told this way, is that God has invited everybody to the wedding banquet. Still, the people who most deserve the invitation, that is to say, the Jewish religious leaders and their followers, they reject the invitation, and so those who wind up going to the wedding are the ones who deserve to go the least. But they're honored by God's grace toward them. But, and this would not have been needed to, would not have needed to be said to Matthew's readers, the big correlation between Matthew's original audience and the people in the parable collides when we get to the king. After the invitation gets refused. Because the king sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Which, frankly, feels like a bit of an overreaction to having your birthday invitation snubbed. But Matthew's readers would have immediately picked up on this part of the story because they could all remember how Rome had murdered their kin, destroyed their temple, and burned Jerusalem some 10 years prior. They knew exactly what it was like to have their neighbors killed and their holy city burned. So when they read this, they knew immediately. This is the traditional interpretation of the parable of the wedding banquet, where God is the king and is genuinely furious with the Jewish leaders for rejecting God and the son that God sends. Now, at the time of Matthew's writing, which is after the leveling of Jerusalem, an allegorical interpretation like this made sense. But such a reading runs into some troubles when the story's told in different contexts. It raises some serious problems. For one thing, the interpretation of the parable in Matthew has been used throughout history to focus hatred upon Jews. A traditional interpretation of this text has been used at different points to justify anti-Semitism. On this reading, Jews are going to go to hell because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Well, needless to say, 
an interpretation like that, has occasioned great harm against an already vulnerable population. And for another thing, an interpretation like that of God as angry and violent feels like it's swimming a bit upstream in the rivers of God's grace and mercy. But now that's not to say that God's a big dopey pushover who never gets upset or has an angry thought. But the kind of violent retribution evinced by the king in this parable, it doesn't feel like righteous indignation in search of justice. This feels like an arbitrary anger more concerned with being dishonored than with the welfare of the people over which the king has been charged. Moreover, seeing God as the king in this parable has been used to rationalize the state's use of violence and coercion. If God is the king in this parable, it's not too great a leap to begin to reverse the roles. In other words, if God is king, then kings are gods. The violence to which they subject their people is somehow, on this reading, divinely sanctioned. Now, stepping back, maybe we should consider the audience who heard Jesus tell the parable. Jesus, of course, predates Matthew's gospel by 50, 60 years. Indeed, when Jesus told the parable, there was no contentious dispute between traditional Jews and Jewish Christians. When Jesus was kicking around the Palestinian outback, there were no Christians. There were only Jews and Romans. Unlike Matthew's original readers, when Jesus started talking about a king giving a wedding banquet, his audience wouldn't have immediately made the connection between the king in the parable and God. They would be much more likely to see their own cultural struggles in this king, who, let's be honest, seems kind of vindictive and pouty, right? No, vindictive and pouty would have described not their vision of God, but of a genuine political figure in their own world. Somebody like King Herod Antipas. Jesus' listeners knew about arbitrary rulers who pursued their self-aggrandizing interests at the expense of the people that they were supposed to protect. It seems clear that the king feels like everyone, but he is unworthy. The king feels like he's always walking around searching for somebody new to be disappointed in. Now, one reason reading this story makes sense in our context is that, well, we we know what it's like to have vindictive and pouty leaders who care only about their self-aggrandizing interests. (laughs) We know what it's like to have people in power threaten to unleash the forces of violence on their own people, predicting that the cities they're called to protect will will burn. One question that commentator Raj uh, Nadella says is raised by this parable of the wedding banquet when read this way is whether or not those in power are worthy of their subjects. And if those in power demonstrate they're unworthy to rule those who've been entrusted to them, how do we, we who follow Jesus, how do we challenge that? Well, what's our responsibility in the face of that? What this parable invites us to do in our context, it seems to me, isn't necessarily to equate God and the king, but perhaps to contrast them 
We're invited to imagine a world in which the king is God. And what would such a world look like if we were ruled by God? If God were sitting in the Oval Office or said yes to become Speaker of the House, what would that look like? I mean, what would the world look like if God were signing executive orders? Who would health care reform cover if Jesus were writing the bill? How, many, uh, how might things be different if the divine were running the equal opportunity employment or OSHA or the EPA or HUD or the Department of Education? What would our tax system look like? Who would benefit most from it? Would the rich in virtue of their riches continue to have unfettered access while the poor have no voice? How might ICE and Customs and Border Patrol respond to those seeking safety in a world where God's making immigration policy? What, what would God's answer be to police violence and the systemic injustice that disproportionately harasses and kills people of color, especially black people? Look, if, if God were busy writing and passing legislation, what kind of faces would live at the center of God's undivided attention? All these questions, they're followed by another one. What would you and I have to do to feel at home in a world where God's in charge? where the worthiness of the guests isn't an issue, what, what would we have to do to feel at home in a world where people are welcomed and not coerced, where the host isn't more concerned with their own reputation when, than, than with the welfare of the guests? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't we all give our last nickel until payday to live in a world where those who've been wounded by the ones meant to care for them could finally lay their heads down at night without the fear that stalks in the darkness? Where those who've made a permanent home among the disappointed and frustrated, among the suffering and the grieving, could finally feel the hand of peace where all God's children might find the welcome of heaven and the joy of the angels in the eyes of the people that they meet every day on the street. What would that look like? Well, new map or old, that seems like a world worth working for. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.